been uh, attending the Montreal Church know that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Next week we will go into the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke and think about our Lord Jesus and the transfiguration and as he sets his face steadfastly uh, to go to Jerusalem in preparation for Palm Sunday and for Easter. Uh, today I want to read to you uh, from verse 40 of chapter 8 to the end of the chapter. There are two miracles here that are interwoven that show that Jesus is life, for he brings life back to a little girl who dies. He brings healing to a woman who is sick and wholeness and joy. And the lesson that comes to us is one that we need because it speaks about life, it shows us his love and his truth. From verse 40, you remember he had been into the country of the Gadarenes and had healed the poor man uh, who was demon-possessed, legion. And he told that man to go uh, back into his area and to tell what great things God had done for him. He does differently now when he heals. Uh, in one instance, he will ask them to tell no man. Because the people around where the Gadarene demoniac lived wanted him to leave their country. They preferred their swine, their pigs, uh, to his healing ministry. And so Jesus left. But when he comes back across the lake, uh, he comes back into friendlier territory where he had healed people in Capernaum before. And so multitudes are glad to see him. So let's begin at verse 40. I'm reading from the Amplified uh, Bible. Now when Jesus came back to Galilee, the crowd received and welcomed him gladly, for they were all waiting and looking for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who had for a long time been a director of the synagogue. And falling at the feet of Jesus, he begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed to gather around him, almost suffocating him. And a woman who had suffered from a flow of blood for twelve years, and had spent all her living upon physicians, and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all were denying it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the multitude surround you and press you on every side. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I perceived that healing, for he perceived that healing had gone forth from him. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came up trembling, and falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people for what reason she had touched him, and how she had been instantly cured. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go into peace and well-being. 
Now while he was still speaking, a man from the house of the director of the synagogue came and said to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Do not weary and trouble the teacher any further. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not be seized with alarm or struck with fear. Simply believe in me as able to do this, and she shall be well. And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. And all were weeping and bewailing her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing well that she was dead. And grasping her hand, he called, saying, Child, arise from the sleep of death. And her spirit returned from death, and she arose immediately, and he directed that she be given something to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had occurred. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this part of his word. Not long ago, I went through the Atlanta airport, and when I went through the Atlanta airport, I was uh, uh, a little bit amused at uh, the tactics that had been taken in this particular airport to safeguard you against religious people who are trying to pass out flowers and get you into Hare Krishna and whatever else. If you go to Chicago and to O'Hare, you hear constant recordings reminding you that uh, these people are exercising their First Amendment rights under the Constitution. But in Atlanta, they've built a little booth for them, and they can't get out of that booth, and that helps a whole lot. Uh, there's even an organization been made now to protect people against religious people in airports. Um, uh, and the reason that I'm saying this is that I had a terrible night this week. I read a book about that Jonestown massacre. Don't read anything on that terrible thing. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Uh, cults offer and promise something so good, but then it turns out to be a lie. And uh, that was a terrible thing that happened. Well, there was another night when my neighbor across the street who shall remain unidentified, but he came down here from New York and he lives in the first house on the left inside the gate. Uh, he's used to getting everything he wants up there at the stores and now he has to order them all by catalog and then when he looks across the street and sees my light zone, he calls and tells me whatever he got. This is what he got this week. It's two cases. <laughs> These are two cassettes. And you know what they are? The three funniest hours in the history of radio. And they got Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, and they got Trevor McGee and Molly, and Jack Benny and George Burns and Gracie Allen. And uh, one of the funniest things about this is that I was listening to another tape that had to do with cults. And someone, uh, uh, Earl Palmer, a distinguished minister out in California, had also received these same tapes as a gift from his children. And he uh, got me to thinking about uh, the commercials and how we can apply this. Now, this is going to make sense in a minute. Uh, but <laughs> but let, let me tell you about the commercials. These, these are going to... You go ahead and laugh because this is really crazy. In, in this uh, uh, recording, 
and the people who are listening on the radio, please don't write in to get this tape, uh, <laughs> because I can't send you uh, the, the tapes of Castello. You'll have to buy those, but my little rendition is free. Uh, anyway, Bud Abbott and Luke Costello sprung their famous routine, Who's On First? Do you remember that? It's very funny. And uh, they did this right after World War II. And the commercial begins like this. Bud Abbott and Luke Costello in Who's On First? It's, it's the, sh the show starts off, if you remember, with a little commercial in Troy, Harlan. And uh, <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. It, and it, a little singing group comes in and they sing C-A-M-E-L-S. And then an exciting voice says C for comedy, A for Abbott, M for Maxwell, not Betty Maxwell, but Marilyn Maxwell who sings a song on the program, E for Ennis, Skinny Ennis and his band, remember them, L for Costello, C-A-M-E-L. Put them all together and that spells camel. And then after a breezy opening, a serious, authoritative voice said, Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel and let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. And draw up a chair for tonight's camel show starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. And then the show starts. And then the first ad comes. And again, this official voice comes. Now, Charles Allen, one of the greatest preachers in America, and uh, uh, others have always told those of us who study the science of preaching to study ads because they teach you how to din into people's minds something. And this comes in the official voice. Experience is the best teacher. It happened shortly after the end of the war. Two cigarettes glow in the dusk of the veranda of a country house. A man and a woman are chatting. And then here's a little show within a show. The woman speaks first. Robert, you've changed your cigarette brand. This is a camel. I can tell without even looking. He says, yes, I've changed my brand. You know how we smoked whatever cigarette we could get during the war. And she says, don't I? Then he says, yes, I must have tried all the brands during that shortage, but then I found that Camels was best. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of that mercifully, but the script is very touching. And then follows that official voice again, and it says, yes, experience is the best teacher. During the wartime shortage, people smoked whatever cigarette they could get. It was this experience that taught millions the difference in cigarette qualities. Smokers tried cigarette after cigarette on their T-zone. T for throat and T for taste. It was Camel's rich, full flavor and cool mildness that stood out from all the others. The result, and now a third voice comes in. Today, more people are smoking camels than ever before. And then another voice comes in. Experience is the best teacher. Now, that wasn't the funniest. The funniest is the next one. And it's going to be embarrassing to the doctors who may be here in the church. Uh, and, and they put this in an echo chamber so that it, you could just hear this very distinguished voice like it was coming from another world with all this authority. The pages of American history are illumined by the names of doctors who worked unceasingly to overcome disease and to make life happier and more secure for humanity. 
the makers of camels, are pardonably proud of the standing of this cigarette among doctors. A nationwide survey of doctors' cigarettes' preference was recently made. Three leading independent research organizations asked this question of 113,597 doctors, doctors in every field of medicine. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camel. Now, here's what the doctor said. Now, you, pro you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. That's why if you're not a camel smoker, now try a camel on your T-zone. That is, T for taste and T for throat. You're, you're a true proving ground for any cigarette. And see if camel's rich flavor and superb blend of choice tobaccos isn't extra delightful to your taste and see if camel's true mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you don't say camels fit my T-zone to a T. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this, but it, it goes on to tell you that camels gave away 150 million cigarettes free to servicemen during the war, and it goes on to say that they are now sending cigarettes free to about seven Veterans Administration's hospitals. <laughs> now, we laugh at those commercials, but the reason that we laugh at them is this. They are very winsome, and uh, yet they are so untrue. And they are unloving. And they're really not for life. They are against life. Finally, the Surgeon General of the United States had to tell them that they could not tell people that camels were safe for their T-zone, T for throat and T for taste. Uh, they're not kind. But rather a warning had to come. A warning had to come that you were uh, risking your health. So winsome, so delightful, so full of joy and happiness, and yet so untrue and so unloving. It was not for life. It was against life. Now this is what brings us to our text today. C.S. Lewis said that he became a Christian because he became convinced that Jesus Christ was truth. And when he became convinced that Jesus Christ was truth, he knew that Jesus told the truth about himself in his relationship to God. That truth shows the love of God. That truth shows what life, and life, by the way, is one of the big words of advertising, what life is all about. Life that is abundant. Life such as we read in the Gospel according to John. These things are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The word there for life has to do with health. And I'm sure that those of us who are concerned about sickness 
do not realize how important it is to pray for people who are sick. If you stop this morning and think a little bit about this passage of Scripture, and I hope you'll go back and read it again this afternoon, Jesus had come back to a place where there was belief. The cults promised all of these things that man promised that healing, and then he turned out to be a person that Jim Jones, who did not believe the Bible, he did not believe Jesus Christ, he was not for life, he was for death. That's a horrible thing. But when we come to the Scriptures and we meet the living Christ, we see the one who brings us life and love and truth. And you see it here. When Jesus comes back into Capernaum, He comes back bringing with Him truth and bringing with Him love and bringing with Him life. That morning in Capernaum, when Jesus came back, there was a sad household. The president of the synagogue, whose name was Jairus, had his heart broken because he had a little girl, 12 years of age. And he had been up all night long with his wife, and she was sick and dying. And there was no hope for her recovery. But he knew that Jesus had healed there in Capernaum, that someone had been let down through the roof of a house, and that hole in the roof bore testimony to someone's faith in Jesus. As president of the synagogue, he would have known about that. He knew that Peter's mother-in-law had been sick of a terrible fever and had been healed there. He knew that there had been that raging demoniac in a synagogue that had been healed. And so, he did what many of us do when we are pushed up against the wall. He prayed. He was not ashamed to come openly to Jesus. And that was a big move for the ruling elder of the synagogue, the chief one there, to seek out Jesus. And yet, when you hurt badly enough, you will pray. You will pray like you never prayed before. And when someone you love is terribly sick and close to death, you'll pray. You'll pray harder than you ever prayed before. But we must not think that God is simply on call, just at our beck and call. But we need to give ourselves to him. And so Jairus is willing to go public. He is willing to go to Jesus. And he fell at his feet and begged him for the life of his little daughter, who was only 12 years of age. Now when Jesus was walking with Jairus and a sea of humanity, was pressing against them. If you've watched the news this past week, you've seen uh, Bonnie Sodder or the Ayatollah or someone else on the news in a big crowd scene. There was a huge crowd of people surging around Jesus. More people than there are in this chapel today. Pressing against him. Probably as many people touched him that day as there are here. 
But there is going to be a very different result with one person. And this is the woman who remains nameless, who is ceremonially unclean, who has to segregate herself from her husband and her family and cannot enter the temple. She had spent all of her money upon the physicians and Mark tells us she is not anything better but rather worse. Now that's not to make aspersions upon the work of doctors but Mark was not a doctor. Luke softens it just a little bit and says that no one could heal her. He just puts it that way. And that's frequently the case. Uh, I have a friend at the Mayo Clinic who told me that one of the dreadful things about serving there is that they were, they were so famous that people thought that they could bring anyone there and that they could be healed. And he said, we do the best that we can, but not every person is going to be healed. Well, this woman had spent all of the money that she had on physicians and was nothing better but rather worse. And she comes through the crowd of people thinking in her heart, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be well. She had faith in Jesus. It may have been an imperfect faith, but it was faith with everything that she had. And she reached out and touched him. And Jesus felt that virtue had gone out of him, says the King James, or power had gone out of him, as the uh, original language reads. This makes me believe that Isaiah 53, as interpreted by Matthew, who tells us that he bore our infirmities and our sicknesses upon himself. That when someone touched Jesus and healing went out of him, it cost Jesus something to heal that person. That was not true of the apostles. There's nothing that in their healing uh, miracles that occur in the book of Acts where we see them knowing that virtue has gone out of them. But in Jesus' case, this must have been it. And that may have been one of the reasons why he sought so often to get away from the crowds and to go aside for prayer and for rest and for recuperation. It took something out of him. It cost him. And so Jesus turned in this sea of humanity and asked the question, Who touched me? And Peter, who is never at a loss for words, Peter said, Master, the crowd presses against you and you say, Who touched me? And Jesus knew that someone had touched him and had been healed and he knew who it was. But he did not want her faith to remain a superstition. She may be thinking that because she had touched him, and he was a famous rabbi that her touch of him in her condition would have made him unclean. Or maybe that he would take the miracle back which she had stolen by touching him. But that's not his purpose at all. He wants her to know that God loves her and that he loves her and that her healing is a gift from God 
through the Messiah to her. And he also wants all the other people to know that she's healed and they're not to treat her like a leper anymore, but they are to accept her healing. And so he said, who touched me? Who touched me? Think about this woman's faith just for a moment. A lot of us pray when we're in trouble. And we want that life, and we want that love, and we want that truth, that heal. But we often want it, the healing, without wanting the Lordship of Jesus in our lives. And that won't work. You cannot send up a little telegram to God, give me this, God give me that, God heal so and so, God heal this one, God heal that one. With just a flash of your eyes, without your willing to live under his lordship. And he wanted this woman to know that. And he wants you to know it this morning too. And when you do know it, then true healing takes place. Out in Hollywood, California, is the second largest Presbyterian church in the United States. Clayton Bell of our own community is pastor of the Highland Park Church in Dallas. But the next largest Presbyterian church is in Hollywood, California. Lloyd John Ogilvy is the minister of that church, and in that church they have a, a healing service. They have a chancel, which is just the place that's raised up at the front of the church, and they have elders, and in keeping with the passage in James, which says, Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and lay hands on them and pray for them. And they have a certain service in which they will invite people to come, and they come forward to the chancel, and elders of the church actually lay hands on them and they pray for them. And he told of a couple that had been invited by one of the enthusiastic Christians in that church to come to the healing service. The couple had come to the parting of the ways. They were going to get a divorce. Their marriage was not good enough to be a marriage anymore. They were fighting all the time. There was no way they could get along, and it just seemed sick and terrible, and they were fed up with it. They had an appointment to see a lawyer the next day to finalize the divorce. But their Christian friend begged them to come to this service. They sat out in the pews. And when the invitation for people to come forward to the chancel was given to pray for healing in the group, and the citations from Scripture were read supporting this, the man who had brought them got up from his seat and came forward and knelt and explained to one of the elders there that there was a couple that he had brought who had a sick marriage and that they needed the healing presence of Christ. And the elder prayed with him. And then he went back and sat down by this couple again. And they turned to him and said, Why on earth did you go forward? Is anything wrong with you? And he said, No. I went forward because of you two. I went forward to ask that prayer be made to heal your sick marriage. Well, they sat there for a while, and finally the man couldn't 
bear it any longer. And he trembling got up and came forward to the chancel and knelt and explained to the elder that he wanted to be forgiven for the things which he had caused that hurt the marriage. The wife had not yet come to the front. She stayed back in the seat. When he came back, she said, why did you go? He said, I went to pray for you because after tomorrow it's all over. And I went to pray for what you're going to do after this. And I wanted to seek forgiveness for what I'd done. Well, you know what happened. She got up and went forward. And then he went forward with her, the two of them together. And they prayed together. And the next day they did not go to the lawyer. They went to someone who could help them put their marriage back together again. And they knew the healing power of Christ. Because they were willing each to give up something in their lives and to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now this is the reason Jesus makes this woman in the crowd go public with her embarrassing malady. She trembling, says Mark, in his account of this, all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. She trembling fell at his feet. And Jesus speaks to her a word that I think he only uses one time, and that's right here. He says to her, daughter, daughter, a very affectionate term, daughter of thy faith, and that's the reason I use this amplified uh, version of the Bible. Thy faith hath made you well. Go and enter into peace, untroubled and undisturbed, into well-being. Because that's the healing power of Christ. Now John Greenleaf Whittier, who wrote that lovely hymn which Arlen sang so beautifully this morning, the healing of his seamless dress is by our beds of pain. We touch him in life's throng and press, and we are whole again. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus here this morning? Do you believe that what he said is true, that wherever two or three were met together in his name, that he would be in the midst of them? If that's true, then Jesus is right here in Montreat, in the Montreat Presbyterian Church in Gaither Chapel this morning. He's with us. He's come here. And his healing presence is here. There were many people who touched him who were not healed. But this woman touched him in faith and she was healed. You may have some need. And you can touch him by faith too. Because he says he's here. He says he's here. And you can ask him for healing. If you really mean business with him. She was healed instantly. Then he went on to Jairus' house. And you know what happened there. The paid whalers were crying out and saying it was no use for him to come, that the little girl was dead. And Jesus 
teaches us that death is not so tragic as we make it to be. It hurts. And I'm not going to say it isn't tragic at all because it always hurts. But not so tragic because He has come. He is the Messiah. And He is the Lord of life. The word cemetery means place of sleeping, where people sleep. Sleep awaiting the resurrection when Jesus will awaken and the dead in Christ shall rise. And he wants us to know that. When he comes to this place and is met with mockery and ridicule, he will not reveal himself to unbelief, but he causes those people to go out of the room. And he takes with him Peter and James and John because they seem to have a closeness to him that's wonderful and good. He takes them into that inner room with him where that sweet little girl is. And he speaks to her in her native tongue, Aramaic, Talithi Kumi, little child, arise. And she's raised from the dead. And then in his thoughtful, wonderful way, he proves that she's restored wholly. Give her something to eat, says Jesus. Give her something to eat. She's really alive, and she's well. She's hungry now. Give her something to eat. That way they know that it's all for real, and that she's back under the natural laws again, because he has brought her back in a supernatural way, but back into a natural world. Then he charges them that they're not to tell anyone. Not to tell anyone because still he has other work that he must do. Now all of this, the healing of the woman, the healing of Jairus' daughter, was in response to faith. And faith is that which God creates within us, enabling us to trust in Him. Dwight L. Moody said, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith didn't seem to come. And then one day I was reading the tenth chapter of Romans, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study, and faith has been growing ever since. So the Word of God, that's one reason we're going through these studies in Luke. Because the world has its false things which it panders and seeks to peddle toward us which are untrue and unloving and do not care for us. But here is truth and here is love and here is life if we are willing to trust in Him. Until I learn to trust, I never learn to pray. And I never learned to fully trust till trouble came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength, I never knew nor dreamed till I was tested that he would see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow 
drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm that he himself may be our hiding place. His heart that knows our deepest grief knows well when cares annoy. We would not long for heaven if earth held only joy. Maybe you need the Lord for healing. Maybe you need the Lord for salvation. He's here. And he's key. And he'll meet your need if you ask him to right now. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for Your love which shines to us from the pages of the open Bible and speaks to us of the great and the good things which Thou hast done. We bless Thee that Thy touch has not lost its ancient power that no word from thee can fruitless fall. Hear us in this morning hour, and in thy mercy, heal us all. In Jesus' name, amen.